This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hi, everyone. Wherever you are today, I'm so thankful that we are connecting together online as we walk in the way of Jesus. Here at Calvary, we want to be the kind of people who follow the life that Jesus lived, who walked the way that he walked, who followed the habits that he practiced, the disciplines that we see throughout his life. We want to look more and more like Jesus the longer that we live. That's what we've been working together on in our series. Those practices, those disciplines, those habits that set apart the people of God and the followers of Jesus. Today, as we wrap up our series, we're going to look at one of those practices, one of those habits of Christ followers, which perhaps we admire most. It's the kind of person that we love to be around, the kind of habit that we love to see expressed and experienced in the lives of other people. We all hope that this kind of person would be in close proximity to us, maybe a close friend or even better, a family member. It's the habit, the practice of generosity. Generous people are the best, aren't they? They're some of the most happy people that we meet and they make us especially happy when they're generous to us. Who comes to your mind when you think of a generous person? When you do a quick Google search for the world's most generous people, you find a list of familiar names. Names like Gates and Buffett and Bezos and Zuckerberg. My favorite search result, though, when you, when you put into Google, world's most generous people is the third one that comes up. It links to an article that's entitled, The World's Most Generous People and How to Contact Them. How good would it be to have that list? Here's the cell phone number of Bill and Melinda Gates. You can call them up. Hey, Bill, it's your buddy, John. You remember me? What, you, you don't remember me? I remember you. Man, I used Windows XP for so long. Can you help a brother out? Just send a check here to my address. When we think of generosity, we often think of those kinds of lists that sort of rank people based on how much they give. We think of generosity as an amount, how much they give, what kind of percentage of their income it is, how often they give. And then we ask similar questions of ourselves. We want metrics. We just want a threshold. Like, what's the dollar amount that I have to give in order that I could be a generous person? The Bible doesn't define generosity by an amount, but rather by an attitude. I'm sorry if that's a bummer. If that makes you feel like, man, I thought I was going to be off the hook. What we want to look at together in the time we have remaining is the kind of attitude of generosity that we see in the scriptures. The kind of people who set them apart by being especially generous. The kind of attitudes that they displayed despite their circumstances. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're new to studying the Bible, 2 Corinthians is in kind of the second part of the Bible, which we call the New Testament. It begins with four books that are the historical account of the birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Following those first four books in the New Testament is the book of Acts, which is the historical account of how the early church began and is the story of the amazing ways that the apostles were used by God to build the church in all these different places. 
And following Acts comes a series of letters, first written by the Apostle Paul to a number of those early churches. The first one's written to the church in the city of Rome, and the next ones are written to the church in the city of Corinth. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Corinth, which was in southern Greece, a port city, affluent, artistic, influential. So many people traveled through there because it was a place of business. It's surprising, though, that Paul would have to remind them about the importance of generosity. He spends the next two chapters of this letter, and we'll look at selected verses from both chapter 8 and chapter 9. He reminds them and encourages them to be generous because they weren't being as generous as they ought to be. And it's surprising that a people who lived in an affluent, intellectual, successful city would need a reminder to be generous. The problem that the people in the city of Corinth were experiencing is not dissimilar to a problem that we've experienced in Boulder County for many, many years. Despite being one of the most educated and affluent counties in the country, Boulder County lags state and national averages for charitable giving by significant amounts. In fact, the Community Foundation of Boulder County, which researches the, the charitable giving by people in our community and also the different places that need charitable gifts, has said that if the people who lived in Boulder County simply gave the national average of charitable giving, which is somewhere around 3%, there would be an additional $68 million available in our community to meet the social needs of so many people. One nonprofit has said there would be so much money that we could eliminate childhood hunger in Boulder County if people just gave the national average. We could deal with issues like homelessness, like affordable housing, like other societal problems if we were just average. So much different than the picture we see that Paul uses as the illustration of the people who lived in Macedonia. Macedonia, on the other hand, was north of Corinth, and it's the region filled with a number of cities of churches that we're familiar with. The church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Berea, all were in Macedonia. Now, Macedonia wasn't a less affluent area necessarily, but the churches who were there, because of their proximity to Rome, were experiencing significant persecution. And so the brothers and sisters who lived in Macedonia were experiencing extreme poverty. They were being taxed. They were being persecuted. And so they didn't have as many resources. So when you look at verse 2, Paul says, describing Macedonia, that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. If you can circle in your Bible or maybe you can highlight on your phone, however you're reading the Bible today, you might circle four words that are in verse two. Affliction, poverty, joy, and generosity. Now, when we see words like affliction and poverty, those aren't words that usually come to mind when we think about a people who are generous. But notice the other word that jumps out. It's the word joy. Affliction and poverty are circumstances. They can come and go and change. But joy is deeply rooted in our souls. And it's an attitude that is a result of the work of God. 
And so the key for the Macedonians in the way that they were able to overflow in generosity despite their poverty was their attitude of joy. Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to join the Macedonians in providing help to the brothers and sisters who were in Jerusalem, who were also experiencing persecution and they needed help. And so as Paul uses the Macedonians as an example to the Corinthians of how to be generous, it's, it's interesting that the Macedonians would sort of resonate with the needs that are happening in Jerusalem, perhaps because they knew what it was to experience persecution and affliction. They understood the needs that their brothers and sisters had. Maybe unlike the Corinthians whose affluence insulated them from understanding the needs of others. But it's an important lesson for us to see that even when we are circumstantially poor, but spiritually rich, we can overflow with generosity. Where does that kind of generosity ultimately come from? How could the Macedonians find joy despite being afflicted? Well, it's because generous hearts grow from God's grace. Look back at verse one. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. God's grace is fertile ground to grow generous hearts because of what God has done for us that we don't deserve. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. God gives it to us even though we don't deserve it. And the most magnanimous expression of God's grace, of course, has been the gift of his son, Jesus, which Paul mentions down in verse nine. He says, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus left heaven. Imagine the unimaginable riches that existed there in the throne room of God that he had enjoyed and delighted in for eternity. And he didn't consider those things something to be grasped or held onto, but he humbled himself and came to the earth as a human, born in a manger, lived a simple life, didn't have a place to lay his head, died the death of a criminal. Why? So that you could join him in inheriting all things as a child of God. So that you could experience the gift of spending eternity with your heavenly father, never hungry, never thirsty, not wanting for anything, never experiencing jealousy again, not worrying, not toiling, completely and totally satisfied by the glory of God. What do we say to that? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. When we as a people come to grips with what Jesus has done for us that we could never do, it changes our attitude to be joyful and thankful for what God has done for us. It reshapes, in fact, what we think about the things that we have in our lives, about our possessions. We know that without God's grace, we would have nothing. Mostly when we think about the grace of God, we think about that gift of salvation. But God's grace manifests itself in many different ways. We experience God's grace through God providing a job, through God giving us a home, through the clothes that we wear, through the family that we're a part of, through the friends that we provide, through the church that we join together with. All of these tangible things are expressions of God's grace in our life. And when we understand that all that we have is an example of the grace of God, it changes our perspective because truly generous people have surrendered all that they have to the Lord. Notice that Paul doesn't try and guilt the Corinthians into giving. In fact, he says in chapter nine, verse seven, 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's not external grace that produces a cheerful giver, but rather internalized grace that does. Understanding what God has done for us that results in us being cheerful, in us delighting to give. The kind of person who knows what God has done for us and what he has given to us can't help but give gifts to others generously. In fact, did you ever think of God as a cheerful giver? He delights to give to you all that he has. He didn't reluctantly send his son. He didn't begrudgingly create the earth for you to live in. He isn't annoyed when he provides for you. He delights to give gifts to his children. When he supernaturally meets a need, he experiences joy by providing for us. I'm always encouraged to hear the stories that you have of God's provision in your life, the ways that he has cared for you and provided for you and given you above and beyond all that you need. Right before Lindsay and I were married, a few months before our wedding, we were going through that last minute crunch of logistical planning for the wedding and the honeymoon and moving into our apartment and all of those details. And it was crazy like it is for so many people. And one particular logistical challenge we were facing was trying to figure out how we could find people to um, sort of sublease my apartment that I had been living in so that after we got married, we could move in to the apartment that we had leased to live together in. And I was having a lot of trouble finding anyone to jump in on my lease. I had about, I would have four months left that I'd have to pay for, and it was going to overlap with our new lease in our apartment. And one night we were working through our budget. I think Pastor Tom had assigned it to us during premarital counseling. And maybe it was the first time we had looked at it on paper and we added up all the numbers. And let's just say that the inflow did not even come close to matching the outflow. And we'd been working hard to try and find people who could move into my apartment and it just wasn't working. And in our desperation that night, we just got together and prayed and said, God, we don't know what to do. We can't afford to pay for two leases We don't have all the resources to do this. We desire to honor you with our resources, God, but we don't know what to do. Can you help? The very next morning, I arrived at church and I sat down at my desk and my phone rang. And it was my landlord who nervously said on the other end of the phone, I have some bad news. Some things have come up and we need to sell the condo that you're renting. And we'd like to ask if we can renegotiate your lease. We know it's a lot to ask, but we'd like you to move out earlier than you were expecting. And I said, well, when do you need me to move out? And they said, we need you to move out four months early on April 30th rather than August 30th. The lease for our new apartment began on May 1st and it was an answer to prayer. So my landlord on the other end is apologizing profusely saying, we're so sorry. Is there anything we can do? We hope we can work this out. We hope that you'll be patient with us and understanding. And I interrupted them and said, don't apologize. This is an answer to prayer awkward silence. My landlord says, I'm sorry, what? I said, literally last night, my fiance and I were praying because we didn't know what we were going to do about multiple leases. And this is an answer to prayer. And they somewhat dumbfoundedly said, okay, sent over a new lease to us. I moved out from my old apartment on April 30th, moved into our new one on May 1st, and we were married on May 22nd. It was such an example for us of God's provision 
You know, he could have answered that prayer in a number of different ways. Maybe it just would have been that all those ads I had placed for someone to sublease my apartment, someone would have called and I would have thought, oh good, I worked really hard and I took care of what I needed to do and the responsibilities on me and I'm thankful that that happened. But the way that God intervened for us has just been a story that Lindsay and I have clung to throughout our marriage. That when times have been hard, when we weren't sure what was next, when we didn't know if we'd have enough resources, when we didn't know whether God would come through, we've reminded ourselves of that story as an example of God's provision, as a reminder of how God has been gracious to us. So generous hearts grow from God's grace and God's grace flows from generous hearts. Look at verse 11 in chapter nine of 2 Corinthians. Paul says to the Corinthians, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God allows his grace to flow through our generous hearts to others. It's a beautiful way of how we get to partner with God in the expansion of his kingdom, in the sharing of the grace of God that we have experienced as it flows out from our hearts of generosity to others as we meet their needs. So that, they might give thanks to God so that they might find salvation in Jesus so that their needs might be met so that they could attribute your generous heart to the grace of God. I am so thankful to be a part of a church that is amazingly generous. You guys consistently blow me away with how generous you are. One of my privileges on staff is to serve as the church treasurer. And so from time to time, I'll get a note from someone thanking Calvary for its ministry and included in there is a check. Some of my favorite ones that I've received have been from widows who are on a fixed income and who maybe even apologize and say, I'm sorry that I haven't been at church recently, but I wanted to make sure to give you my tithe. We're praying for you and the ministry of our church. We have stories in the business offices, checks come in from children or small dollar amounts received from kids who are trying to help further our ministry or help a program that we're participating in. It's a beautiful expression of the generosity of God's people. And it has nothing to do with an amount. It has everything to do with an attitude, which we can see shine through in the ways that people demonstrate their generosity. I think of the 131 year history of our church where people who have come before us, generations before us have been so generous so that we might be able to gather together now, even virtually, so that we can have multiple campuses, so that we can spread the grace of God throughout Boulder and Weld County and now Adams County. It's an amazing picture of generosity flowing out of God's people to those who need it. I think of many years ago during the kingdom assignments, which were a series of projects to help our church look externally outside the walls of our church. And in one of them, we encouraged each other to sell a possession worth $200 or more, and then to bring those proceeds back so that we might be able to give all of that money away. And we were overwhelmed by the generosity of God's people. We gave away so much money to so many organizations in the city of Boulder that blessed them and helped them, and met the needs of people. And it was so inspiring to be a part of, and, and it charted a course, I think, for us to be a people who were growing in generosity. If you've been around Calvary for uh, Christmas time, you know that each year we participate together in a little project we call the Heart of Advent, where we commit together to spend less on Christmas so we might be able to give more to important world-changing projects. We've had the police and sheriff's department of uh, 
Boulder County and the city of Boulder and the town of Erie come to us and say, we have needs for safety equipment for our officers. Would you help us? And you were overwhelmingly generous that we gave away so much more equipment than we even anticipated. Several years ago, we said, you know, around the corner from the Boulder campus, Habitat for Humanity is building four homes and we'd like to be able to sponsor some of them. And you were so overwhelmingly generous that we helped to pay for the building of four homes in our neighborhood so that four families could have an affordable place to live in the city. The Erie campus has given so much to Erie Uplink, which helps to meet the needs of kids who go to school on free and reduced lunch. And Erie Uplink provides tiger packs, which help bridge the gap between those free and reduced lunches. We've seen so many expressions of generosity. The most recent one during the heart of Advent was this last year. After we had spent a significant season of time praying together as a church about what God was calling us to next. And we sensed that the Lord was leading our church to launch a third campus. We didn't know where, but we were trusting that God was calling us to go. And so we simply said to the church, we believe God's calling us to go to a third campus. We don't exactly know where it's gonna be. We don't exactly know what it's gonna look like, but we're trusting God. Would you join with us as we go to a place where God's calling us? And you overwhelmingly and generously gave so that we could launch a third campus. In fact, today, this Sunday, August 30th, is the very first Sunday that our Thornton campus is gathering together on the lawn there for the first official service as Calvary Bible Church. It's a historic day in the life of our church. And it happened in part because of your generosity and in part because of the generosity of the people of God who used this building before we had it. They were known as a church called The Gathering, and they had had some sweet ministry in their history and had been having some challenges recently. And we got to know them earlier in this year and met them and started to share with them about what we sensed God was calling us to do and where he was calling us to go. And over a series of meetings, sharing our vision for what a church might look like and learning more about their great ministry and their history, that group of people, about 13 remaining members, voted together to generously give us their building, to just turn it over to us and say, this is yours to be the third campus of Calvary Bible Church. What an amazing expression of generosity. What an amazing example of the grace of God in our life that is flowing out from the heart of generous people so that the grace of God might continue to be present in the city of Thornton. We are so grateful to God for those beautiful, generous people who have gone before us to give us a place where we might meet there. And we're praying about whenever we're able to meet in person again, that God would bless that Thornton campus to be an instrument of grace and mercy in the lives of people who God calls to come there. Throughout this process of getting ready to launch the, th uh, the third campus in Thornton, we've recruited a team of volunteers who have regularly been out there doing all sorts of wonderful projects. Some of them have been working on construction projects in the building to get it ready so that we might be able to use it someday to meet in person. Others have been gathering together every week to go on prayer walks throughout the community to pray for the people who are there, to meet the needs of the people who live nearby that campus. We are so grateful for the time that so many people have given generously of to participate in the launching of that campus. To those who have given their time and their talents of working construction to break walls down, to paint them, to put new walls back up again, to lay carpet, to do all of the things that have needed to happen in that building so that we might use it as a resource and ministry center to bless the community that God has called us to. For the 17 years 
I've been on staff at Calvary in the more than 20 years I've been privileged to attend our church. I've learned a number of things from generosity from so many of you. As we close, I wanna give you three things I've learned from you about the kinds of people who live a generous life. The first is that you prioritize it. I've watched so many of you make a commitment to be generous, to structure your life in such a way that generosity comes first before your needs, before your wants, before your vacations, before your projects, you have prioritized generosity in your life, both with your resources and with your time and with the ways that God has gifted you. It's at the top of your list because generous people know that giving is the best investment you'll ever make. It's the most important financial decision you ever make. And it brings returns like nothing else because generosity brings financial freedom. It's the antidote to jealousy. When we give our resources away, God protects us from desiring and wanting more because we've released them to his good purposes. So I've watched so many of you prioritize generosity in your life. I've also watched so many of you plan for generosity in your life. You've created margin in your life so you could be generous. You've paid off debt. You've gotten rid of a car and a payment so that you could plan to be generous. You've looked at your year and said, how does my income ebb and flow throughout the year? Perhaps I get a bonus. Perhaps I know that this big house sale is coming. Whatever it is, you make a plan to be generous. So you prioritize, you plan, and then you practice it. You just make it a habit. That's what discipline is. It takes consistency and commitment. And I've watched so many of you model it so well. That's what all the spiritual disciplines require. Consistency, commitment. That's why they're a discipline. That's why we've been studying and encouraging them together during this series, that we would live a life like Jesus did, that we will walk in the way that he walked, that we would be a people set apart for his purposes, that his habits and rhythms would be the values that shape us as individuals and as a church. So as we close our series, Walk in the Way, let's remind one another that we are called to be a people who are committed to living under the Bible's authority, who are depending in their life on prayer, who are regularly sharing the gospel, who are constantly pursuing holiness, who work hard at loving one another and who together are growing in generosity. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for the ways that you have demonstrated generosity through your son, Jesus, through the gifts that you have given us, through the grace that you have shown us in our life. Father, it's our desire to follow you, your lead as people who have hearts of generosity that allow the grace of God to flow out from us to others who are in need. We give you thanks, God, for the generous expression and gift of our third campus in Thornton. We pray a blessing on those saints, God, who, who considered that building as a part of the kingdom of God and have released it for continued ministry. We pray a blessing, Lord, on that ministry. We pray, Lord, you would watch over it and protect it. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to shine the light of the grace of God in the city of Thornton for your glory, we pray. Amen.